Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Jennifer Kincheloe's 1906 Los Angeles mystery series introduces the irresistible Anna Blanc. She's the Kardashian of her day, beautiful, rich, but willing to give up a life of privilege and challenge the status quo to pursue her dream of becoming an LAPD detective. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Jennifer explains how much of Anna is based on LA's first woman detective and how chronic fatigue got her into writing. But before we talk to Jennifer, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll get a full transcript of our chat, plus links to Jennifer's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Jennifer. Hello there, Jennifer, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm very pleased to be here. And I'd like, I always just like to mention this miracle of modern science, that you're in Colorado and I'm in Auckland. So have you still got snow in the ground in Colorado? It is snowing tonight. Oh, wow. That, that's a picture. Okay. Look, beginning right at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you just felt, I've got to write fiction or my life will ha- be missing something? And if so, what was the catalyst for that? Yeah, well, I didn't start writing fiction until I was in my 40s. So um, I I suppose I thought that I couldn't do it. In fact, I'm, I remember saying one time, you know, I can write nonfiction because I published various nonfiction articles in my career as a research scientist, but um, I didn't think it could make up a story. Well, I got chronic fatigue and I was in bed for two months and I didn't work. I just really sort of slept. And when I was awake, I would listen to books on tape. And when I awoke from that time of sleeping, I just had my mind was very clear and I decided I wanted to write something. So I sat down and I wrote a screenplay And I knew nothing about writing. I had no training in craft. I never read a a writing book before. So um, that was how it started. And I found myself so passionate about it. And I would just write all day. And, you know, I would write and not do anything else. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to see anyone. I just wanted to sit and write all the time. And I thought, wow, this this is something very special. And I would love to do it. You know, I'd love to do it professionally. So that was how it started. And was that any of that writing, the work that later became Anna Blanc? Yes. So the first thing I wrote, I started with screenplays because I thought that they'd be easier than writing a novel because they were shorter, but actually I think screenplays are harder. Um, But I, 
I wrote a screenplay and it was contemporary and it was kind of for kids and it was really terrible. And I sent it off to my friend who's a, he's a screenwriter. He wrote, um, he's written all kinds of kids movies, um, like Shrek two. And, um, I, I don't know, but, um, he, he's an old friend, uh, David, and Weiss. And he read my screenplay and he said, wow, this is really awful. And I said, well, what do I do? You know, because I have this passion and, um, he gave me a bunch of books to read. So I read these books that he recommended to me. And, um, and then I started another screenplay and that screenplay was the secret life of Anna Blanc. And then after I wrote the screenplay, I let it sit for a year and then I wrote it into the novel. Fantastic. I think you're right about screenplays. There's quite a lot more necessary formula about them, isn't there? I mean, you need to really understand what they're looking for. There's a little bit more freedom in a novel, although they do have their conventions as well, but but it's a little bit more free than a screenplay. Would you agree? Yes, I'd agree. And I, I feel like because I started with screenplays, I'd actually written three screenplays before I started writing Anna Blanc into a novel. And it, it taught me a lot about story structure that I think was useful. Um, but I, you're, you're exactly right. You have more freedom in the novel so you can deviate. Yeah, that's right. Now, you've mentioned The Secret Life of Anna Blanc, which is the first one in your series. You introduced us to a whimsical, naive, rich girl, a kind of Gibson girl, who wants to be a police detective and, and have agency in the world, make the world a better place. And in the first book, she struggles valiantly against being ruled by the men in her life, and in her case, her father and her fiancés, plural, plural. Because for her, a woman of her class, reputation is everything. So firstly, why did you choose the mystery genre? And secondly, what was the attraction of Anna's time period and setting? I haven't mentioned it. It's 1906 Los Angeles. So what was the attraction of that time period and setting? Well, it's funny. Like I mentioned, the first thing I wrote was a contemporary children's movie. And the second thing I wrote was, uh, you know, this historical mystery. And the the entire reason I wrote that screenplay was because I came across an article, a very short article on the internet with not very much information at all about the first woman police officer in Los Angeles. And she became a cop in 1910 and her name was Alice Stebbins Wells. And I didn't know much about her, but I was so impressed with her because I imagined what that would be like to be the only woman in the LAPD. And I just, I was fascinated. I wanted to learn more and I wanted to write something in her honor. So I started out to write this historical mystery set in her time period. And that's really, you know, how I chose that time and place. And then I had so much fun with the first novel that I wanted to make it a series. Fantastic. Yes. And so did Anna spring from the page fully formed or did she gradually take shape? Oh, yeah, she, she sprung from the pitch fully formed. I I had wanted, as I said, to, to write something sort of an, in honor of Alice Stebbins Wells. And my character, as she came out, as she 
materialized on the page was nothing like Alice Stebbins Wells, who was, you know, middle-aged, um, very average-looking, middle-class woman, um, married, and and uh, she had been a minister, but very sober-minded, very civic-minded. And then out pops Anna Blanc. So um, nothing like I had planned. That's hilarious because, you know, I referred to the Gibson girls. And for those who don't know, they were kind of like the Kardashians of their day. They were the ideal height of fashion and glamour and uh, with an aloof, I saw somewhere, I thought it was a wonderful line, an aloof spirit of mockery of the male, which was irresistible to both sexes. And I I love the dialogue between Anna and her policeman because she is forever telling him how she is not in the least bit interested in him and he can just go away while you can feel the attraction between them is, is absolutely, um, you know, hot. <laughs> so <laughs> Good. <laughs> Did you see her as a kind of Kardashian? <laughs> yes, I mean I I did. I'm, and she's yeah. she's such a product of her time, and her beauty and her wealth spoiled her in a way that had a huge impact on her character development, which I think is um, an interesting part of the novel. Yeah. Because in book two, her situation takes a real tumble. Won't won't give anything away here, but she gets part of her wish to join the LAPD, but it doesn't really quite work out at all how she'd hoped. Um, and that book, it's really interesting because her her character is tested in a different way in that that book. Um, so I'm very interested to see how where it's going to go in book three. Yes, I'm working on book three right now. <laughs> so I was writing it this afternoon. <laughs> oh, really? Great. Well, I'm, yes, I'm sure you're not going to give anything away. And you may not, in the way that you work, do you know for sure how it's all going to end in this book? I think so. Yes. I mean, I put together, I, I really rely on screenwriting structure just because that's what I knew and that's what worked for me twice before. So I kind of sketch it out kind of like a screenplay and I, I know how I want it to end, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm probably two thirds of the way through and the last third is just baffling me. So I know how it ends, but I don't know how I get there. Ah, yes, yes, yeah. And that book also bravely deals a lot with the Chinese population in Los Angeles. A lot of it is set in Chinatown. I wondered if you felt yourself or came up against any resistance with the idea that you're uh, guilty of cultural appropriation because you're writing about something that you have not personally right. experienced. Yeah, it's interesting. I almost want to say it's it's so funny because I really had to learn a lot about racism, about race in in LA, um, and and as a result, learned a lot about racism today and the parallels today, and it's still such a very prevalent problem. Um, and and when I was writing it, I was like, who do I, you know, consult about this? Who is there on this earth today who has much in common with the Chinese 
Americans in Los Angeles in the 1900s. And their situation is so different. Their, what they experienced and what their life was like is so different than what anyone experiences today. So it's almost like it's a lost, I mean, sure, they're the, the great-grandfathers of many Chinese Americans, but in a way, it's, it's a lost way of life. It's a lost experience. And, and the kind of um, racism that the Chinese faced back then is so different than the racism they face today. Just, um, so it, 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 was, it was interesting. And I, I considered it a privilege to get to learn about that part of LA history and tell that tale. And I really took it seriously and did a tremendous amount of research. Um, to learn about and do justice to their situation. Um, and I ran it by uh, a, a friend who happens to be sort of a scholar on Chinese American immigrants in the 19, late 19, early 20th century. And that was fortuitous and um, was guided by him. And then also a couple of Chinese American friends who were able to read the manuscript and give me feedback. So that was super valuable. But yeah, it's um, it's a it's a delicate balance, and it's something I hope you know something I try to do with a lot of respect and and carefully. Yeah, I think it really comes through um, in the book. It's, it's so perhaps moving away from specific books to talking a little bit more about your career. You're published by Seventh Street Book which is a specialist mystery crime and thriller publisher. And they found you through a writing contest. Tell us about that. Well, it was kind of funny. I was in a writing contest because I, I wrote my first book, The Secret Life of Anna Blanc, and I had no idea if it were, was any good at all. Um, and I entered it into a contest. And, um, and for reasons I, I'll tell you later, I'm, I'm not going to say the name of the contest, but um, it was a big contest. There were 10,000 entries um, and five categories. And I won the mystery category. So there were five winners. And um, through that, my my first chapter of my book got posted on the website. And my agent's assistant found it and read it. And oddly enough, she there was no contact information for me. So she contacted me through LinkedIn and I kept getting this LinkedIn invitation from this woman, Elizabeth Bonzer, that I didn't know who she was. And, and finally I was like, I'll be nice and I'll accept her invitation. What do I have to lose? And it was my agent's assistant contacting me because she was interested in talking about representing me. And when I got that LinkedIn message, I was absolutely out of my mind with excitement. I could not sleep. So, um, so, so my agent Zoe King is with the Blair partnership and they represent, um, um, uh, JK Rowling. So I was like, wow, this is just, you know, too exciting for words. 
So one of the things um, my agent said is, um, so she actually contacted me when I was just a semifinalist. And she said to me, don't sign any contracts. So um, when I won, she said, she didn't, she, she said, don't sign that contract. I'll get you a different contract. And so I stepped down and that was a really big decision, a big scary decision, but I trusted her. And I think because I did, I've had so much fun um, with the path that I'm on. And I absolutely adore 7th Street Books. Um, I love the people there. I love how they've treated me. I love my editor. I love my fellow 7th Street Book authors. And I'm really grateful for that experience. Yeah, so that was my really strange way of finding a publisher. That's really great. That's great. Now, before you found that publisher... You were a high, you were, were and are a highly qualified scientist. In fact, I should be calling you Doctor Kinchelo because you are a PhD, and you, you develop complex statistical models. I gather. Tell us a bit about your academic life before writing. Yes, I. Um, so I was a, a public health researcher. And I studied the organization and financing of healthcare. So the Americans healthcare system. And I was at UCLA. I did research there for 11 years. So um, I left UCLA because my husband was transferred. We moved across country. There was no school of public health here. And that was another contributing factor to me starting writing. So I was doing some consulting for the state of Colorado and for some other organizations. And I, um, I started writing and then I kind of let my research go because all I wanted to do or think about was write. Um, but then I, I was re realizing that um, I, I also love research and I worked really hard to get qualified. So I, um, I got a job recently about a year ago with the sheriff's department studying the jails. So I'm partnering with some academic institutions and now my research focus has shifted from public health to corrections. So um, that, that's been absolutely fascinating and, and I'm very busy. It sounds like it might be quite a fruitful area for future books. Oh, I have so many stories. I, 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 keep a little notebook and I take notes about little funny things that happen in the jail or, um, or just getting a better understanding of what it's like, you know, when I walk through the jail and the jail is just, it's bleaker even than you see in the movies. It seems smaller. It seems sadder and, and learning about these things. Um, and, and what it's like to be incarcerated and what it's like to be a deputy and to spend your life in that environment. It's just, um, I feel like it's given a little extra depth to writing about a police matron who actually, who, who also handles women in the jail and is around the men in the yes, jail. Yeah, sure. Is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you would attribute to your success too? What is the secret that, if there is one, of your success? Oh, I think it's that whole 10,000 hours thing. I 
when I started writing, I just didn't stop. I would write 12, 14 hours a day. I would write every day. I, I read every book I could get my hands on, on writing. I would dissect books. Um, I would dissect movies because I started screenwriting. I dissect movies and just pay attention to, you know, the structure. I, I would, I would read opening pages and novels over and over and over again and sort of diagram them and, you know, pay attention to, to what authors were doing that was effective. And if there was a book that was really popular, I'd read it like five times and just say, you know, how did she deal with description? How much description did she use? Or, you know, how does she use her adjectives or her adverbs? Or what is her character development like? And why, why am I so moved by this story? So I think it's that kind of just putting in a lot of time. And, um, and, and I did that, you know, over the course of a few years. And um, that's how I got competent enough to write a novel that people would want to read. Yes, I think you've said that you treated it like another graduate degree, and it sounds like you were utterly passionate about it, also exercising very high analytical skills by the sound of it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure I put as much work into it as getting a master's degree. I I, um, I did. I just wrote and wrote and wrote and rewrote and rewrote. I think it probably took me took me about a year to write my first to, to write the Anna Blanc screenplay, and um, another three years I think to to write the novel. And I have over a hundred versions of the novel on my hard drive. Oh my goodness! And that was after I'd already written the screenplay, and I don't know oh how many goodness. how many versions of the screenplay I had a lot so um yes I hope you don't need to write a hundred versions of book two and three no no I'm a better writer now I have more practice and I have so many deleted scenes and and so many terrible scenes and and laughable scenes and and those were the first things that I wrote so the later things are better and I, I, I think book three, you know, it's, it's going to be much more easy to write. It, and it's also not, I don't have as many, as much research to do for it because I had to really learn um, a lot about Chinese culture, not just Chinese culture, but Chinese culture in 1900s Los Angeles. So that was a tremendous amount of learning. So a lot of research is involved in, in writing historical fiction, obviously. I thought one of the amusing things was not even so much the Chinese, but in, in the book one, her favourite um, sort of swear word almost, or the word she uses as a swear word, yes. is biscuits. And I wondered, is that really you know what, what they used to say? It. <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> where so I funny. got that. Biscuits. I do not know where I heard that. And... I researched slang so meticulously for these books. And I did it by reading the newspapers from 1900s. And I did it by um, reading novels that were written in the 1900s so that I could 
you know, collect slang from the dialogue, from the comic strips, from from the newspaper articles, because sometimes they're pretty casual. And then I also bought this enormous two volume um, dictionary, uh, historical dictionary of American slang. And I use that a lot too. So I have long, long lists of slang words that they used in the 1900s. And I try to pepper my books with them. And Biscuits is the one that I just don't know where I heard it. I don't know where I heard it, but it's Anna's now. It sure is. It is. Yes. Look, in historical mysteries or or historical fiction, generally, the, the period that dominates this English regency and and writers are often warned that some of the other periods, just choosing that period, you, you're just not going to be as successful because people just aren't interested in that period. Do you think that's changing? And are we breaking the hold of the Regency on, on historical fiction? Yes. Yes. And I do think it's changing. Um, I also, I mean, there's so many wonderful, you know, um, Susan Ella McNeil, uh, how am I going to get her name right? I'm going to have to look it up. Um, uh, Mrs. Mr. Roosevelt's confidant, um, Susan Ella McNeil, is that her name? She writes, you know, sort of mid-century. Uh, so does, um, so does yeah, um, uh, Reese Bowen, yes. you know, and she writes 1900s and, and she also writes a later character. And, um, and then I think yes. about James yeah. Viskin, who I adore. His um, his Ellie Stone in the sixties. I think about um, yes, uh, Adrian McKinty's Irish noir yes. from the time of the yeah. Troubles. You know, in the eighties, and and these are historical fiction now. Um, so I do think we're breaking the hold. That's fantastic. Look, turning to Jennifer now as a reader. You know, we've dubbed this podcast the joys of binge reading because people these days do enjoy reading in series have you ever been a binge reader in the past and and if so who do you did you like to read yes and I also am an avid audiobook reader so I was very careful to to make sure that the the my books the secret life of Anna Blanc and and the woman in the camper trunk are both available on audio and they're and I have the best narrator in the world. I, I, she's amazing. She's, she's amazing. Her name is Maura Quirk. Anyway, she's won all kinds of awards. So I really recommend the audiobook. So when I binge, I audiobook binge. And um, one of my favorites is um, Elizabeth Peters. She wrote late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, a, a English woman who was an archaeologist in Egypt. And it her book series, um, Amelia Peabody, is her um, protagonist. The first one's Crocodile on the Sandbank. But she's hilarious and funny and historically accurate and archaeologically accurate. She was an archaeologist. She died, I think, in 2015. Um, her pen name was Elizabeth Peters, but... Her, her real name was Barbara Mertz, and she was a treasure. I love her books. So I really just, you know, periodically will just read through all her Amelia Peabody novels. They're hilarious. Oh, that sounds gorgeous. 
Look, we're coming to the end uh, with, of our chat. And I just wonder, at this stage of your career, if you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything? Mm. My writing career? Yes, yes, your writing career. There may not be anything. I mean, you sound as if you've had you, pretty... Uh, you know, I... I would say possibly to start writing sooner, except that I, I wonder, you know, writing has kind of consumed me and I almost wonder if I was, would have been ready to give up so much of my life to writing before. But, um, but I do, I do wish I'd started earlier. I, I, I do think that because I'd like to, there's so many things I'd like to do with my writing and I'd like to get better and better and better and better. And that takes time. So that's what I'd say. Start early. And my daughter's 16 and she's just started her first novel. Oh, wonderful. So what is next for Jennifer, the writer? What projects do you have under development? So I have another contract for a third Anna Blanc book and I'm working furiously to deliver that on time. Um, and I have, you know, four other Anna Blanc books sketched out. Um, I also started a book in between my Anna Blanc novels, uh, set in 1900s, New Guinea, which, um, <laughs> I don't know. It's super ambitious, but I don't know if I'll get back to that one or not. But there's certainly more Anna Blanc in my future. Did I hear you say four Anna Blancs? More, yes. Oh, more, not four, not F O U R. Oh, um, I did. I mean, there's 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 four ideas I have, and my ideas come. A lot of my ideas come from the newspapers that I read from the 1900s, so they're kind of based on true stories. That's true for both my first two books. So um, the mystery stories are based on real stories that really happen. So I have some stories that fascinate me, and I am kind of developing plots around okay. those. Okay, and where did New Guinea spring from? Oh, you know, when I was um, young, I went to New Guinea for a summer. Oh, really? And I was, um, it was like... 1985 and um and I was in the in the Sepik region among the Sepik Iwan and we were we we had to just travel to the ends of the earth and then we took canoes for uh 18 hours up the river motorized canoes and we were in this village with um you know houses on stilts no mail service no electricity no roads no telephone no, nothing. And um, it was amazing, fascinating experience for me. And I have always really thought that the uh, New Guinea cultures, because there's so many different cultures within that um, country, were fascinating. And more stories need to be told about New Guinea. Oh, great. It sounds like that must have been an amazing experience. So where can readers find you online, Jennifer? Uh, my website is www.jenniferkinchelow.com. So uh, Jennifer, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R, Kinchelow, K-I-N-C-H-E-L-O-E. Um, I'm on Facebook, Jennifer Kinchelow Author. I have a Pinterest page. Um, and 
on Twitter, I'm Jen Kinchelo. And links to all my social media are at the bottom of my website page. Fantastic. I, I noticed that you post quite a few old photographs on Facebook that looked really interesting. Do you find that Pinterest has developed a, a good following as well? Oh, Pinterest is wonderful. Yes, wonderful. And I, I did a lot of my research using photographs um, to see, you know, how people dressed and what they looked like and, um, you know, what they looked like when they were goofing off and what they thought was funny and what their idea of romantic was and so many wonderful things that I could find in pictures. So my, my Pinterest page is extensive and, uh, you know, I have tens of thousands of pictures of clothes from the period. So I think in shoes and purses and jewelry and, and, um, hairstyles and hats and, uh, um, street photography and pictures of people with their pets and, um, yeah, it was really important part of my research. Sounds fabulous. Well, Jennifer, it's been wonderful talking to you today. I'm sorry that technically we've had a few little glitches, but um, we've got through it and it's been lovely to have you, your company. Thank you for taking the time to talk. Thank you, Jenny, so much. I look forward to book three with anticipation. Wonderful. I'll get writing it. <laughs> yes. I want to know what happens with Joe. Thank you so much. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.